Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union label. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome aboard, everybody. Welcome aboard. I'm ever yours, Alan Nathan, the militant moderate. Once again, this is the Oasis for those who have an aversion to the left-right, black-white, two-dimensional approach. Absolutely delighted you could be with us. If this is indeed your virgin voyage, allow me to share with you our mantra. Folks, we want the Republicans out of our bedroom, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. We feel there exists this cavernous gap separating the two orthodoxies and that it's a gap comprised of many degreed thinking people who can argue quite passionately in shades of gray. And to that end, each and every show, we have fine guests to help best illustrate this point. Today is no exception. Also, if you wish to hook up with us on the web, it's www.alannathan.com. Don't forget that email address, alan at alannathan.com. That's A-L-A-N. Coming at you live and strong each and every Monday through Friday at this time. Don't forget the classic Alan Nathan Show, Saturday, 6 to 7 p.m. And overnight Sunday mornings, 3 to 4, all times Eastern. We are indeed a Main Street Radio Network production. Please check us out at MainStreetRadioNetwork.com. Feel free to avail yourselves of our nascent but always robust Twitter and Facebook options that we have there for you. And of course, with great dispatch and alacrity, we'd love to thank our distributor, the Salem Radio Network. That's right, the Alan Nathan Show's entering its 25th year of national syndication, all thanks to you, reaching about 800 towns and cities across a couple of hundred radio station broadcasts each week again, all thanks to you. And by the way, I don't care if you're part of the authoritarian left or perpetually clueless right, please get out of the thought control business. Our topics to jour, as you may have heard, well, lefties babyishly implode after Chris Rock skewers society's preoccupation with outsized outrage and conjured claims of victimhood and artificial assertions of racism, you know, such as those made by Meghan Markle, and also snarkily slaps Will and Jada Smith for humiliating themselves. It's really too funny. Also, Democrats say GOP's demands for cuts before raising the debt ceiling is going to be an attack on our health care, while the Republicans claim that the left spending will crash the economy, even as they both ignore the removal of redundant spending that could save trillions over one decade. So should uh, perhaps Will Smith visit both parties? I mean, these guys are out to lunch. I mean, there, there are remedies here that we're just walking away from. We're just walking away from them. And, and it's just, we shouldn't even be thinking about cutting Medicare or even Medicaid, although we do have cuts that need to be made. But the thing is, is there's a way to do it, but neither side wants to. Now, don't get me wrong. The left clearly is hemorrhaging money more than the right, but it's still leaving, leaving the right in a not very enviable moral position either. You see, folks, every year the Government Accounting Office reports that we're apparently misplacing about $350 billion through redundant spending. And this is all done through 580 duplicative programs managed by about 180 different government agencies. And you know what, folks? We could stop these duplicative programs immediately while actually hurting nobody. 
And we can do so because they're all duplicated. And it would seem to me that regardless of party affiliation, nobody can justify this stupidity when both sides of the aisle could actually benefit from the stoppage of this hemorrhaging practice. Again, this would give us back about three and a half trillion a decade all by itself. It's really astonishing. And, you know, at one time, Barack Obama was really on board with this logic. I'm going to let you hear a clip from January of 2011 in which he addressed this very issue. Clip one, Derek, if you please. We live and do business in the information age. But the last major reorganization of the government happened in the age of black and white TV. There are 12 different agencies that deal with exports. There are at least five different agencies that deal with housing policy. Then there's my favorite example. The Interior Department is in charge of salmon while they're in freshwater, but the Commerce Department handles them when they're in salt water. I hear it gets even more complicated once they're smoked. I love that. I remember when he said that, and I thought, okay, maybe we got someone here. No. I was premature in my sanguinity. Yes. <laughs> Prematurely sanguine on that one. But he was right on the money, wasn't he? Pardon the pun. He was very correct on the money. And the irony is that one of the things that Obama fought and, and Democrats still fight is the idea of tax cuts. I mean, lowering tax rates actually increases tax revenues. And, and, and they would go a long way to help us both acquire extra revenue while also lowering both our yearly deficit and overall national debt. As long, there's a proviso here, as long as we could keep the additional spending from outpacing the increasing revenue. Every time we do tax cuts, it brings in more revenue, but the spending always seems to outpace it. This was even recommended by our 35th president, John F. Kennedy. In this argument, he said a number of things. He said, quote, it's a paradoxical truth that tax rates are too high today and tax revenues are too low. And the soundest way to raise revenues in the long run is to cut the rates now. He said this back in 1962. Now, granted, then the rates were really high, like 80, 90 percent. But the principle still holds true. Every time it's been practiced, it's worked, except for during COVID. He also said, quote, the purpose of cutting taxes now is not to incur a budget deficit, but to achieve the more prosperous, expanding economy, which can bring a budget surplus. He went on to say uh, in the following year, 1963, he said, quote, in today's economy, fiscal prudence and responsibility call for tax reduction, even if it temporarily enlarges the federal deficit, reducing taxes is the best way open to us increasing revenues, unquote. He was basically arguing that those additional revenues w would, wind, would wind up coming back to the Treasury to counterbalance any deficit that might have been temporarily incurred from the initial tax cuts. In other words, the lower the tax rates, the greater the revenue. Why? Because you allow that many more businesses to hire that many more folks who then become that many more taxpayers. And that reality does both grow the economy and eventually increase tax, do tax dollars to the Treasury. So why is Kennedy still not right today? And by the way, while we're on the subject of funny math, let's talk about the stupid use of what's known as baseline projections 
as a way to falsely characterize actual increases in spending as if they're cuts. I mean, this is really a classic example of political deception, and more people need to be armed with the language that defines and exposes it. You see, since Democrats' complaints about spending cuts are always based on spending at a lower projected increased amount versus being an amount that's actually less, you can't really call them cuts. You see, there's, there's, there's a difference between the cutting of spending versus the cutting of planned increases in spending. That's what baseline projections are, planned increases. And cutting those planned increases is not the same as cutting our current spending. And this seems to be acknowledged by everyone but bad faith politicians and their backers. Does the non-left community need to descend upon Capitol Hill with a more populated crowd of discontent before their leaders suspend this stupid practice? I'll give you an example. Their terminology is to say that cuts will be based on what is relative to baseline projections. Oh, my eyes are already glazing over, aren't yours? But in other words, they're saying they'll spend at a lower than projected increase. That's all it is. They'll spend at lower than projected increases originally envisioned. For example, let's say we're now spending $5 a day, but next year we plan on spending $10 a day. Just because we might before then decide to only spend $8 a day, that doesn't mean we now call it a $2 a day cut. You follow my drift? So again, we're going to, we're going to, we're right now we're right now spending five bucks a day, but next year we're going to be spending ten dollars a day. Just because during the interim we might then decide to only spend eight dollars a day, that doesn't mean we now call it a two dollar a day tax cut or two dollar a day cut. Why? Because it's it's still three dollars a day more than the five we're currently spending. But politicians still want to call these cuts from the left. I mean, you've, you've got to be functionally illiterate to buy this stuff, but that's what they do. So please understand, when the left is talking quite often about how the Republicans want to cut this program and cut that program, they're not cutting the spending. They're reducing the amount of the original, originally planned increase. They're not cutting the spending. They're reducing the amount of the originally planned increase. That's not a cut. Unless... Language is no longer tethered to the meanings of the words that comprise it. That's not a cut. You're listening to The Alan Nathan Show right here on the Main Street Radio Network. Going to be right back. According to the new State of Security Preparedness 2023 study released by Avanti, approximately half of respondents said they are very prepared to meet the growing threat landscape, but expected safeguards are ignored a third of the time. And leaders are actually four times more likely to be victims of phishing compared to office workers. Avanti CEO Jeff Abbott. Avanti surveyed 6,500 executive leaders, cybersecurity professionals, and office workers globally to understand the perception of today's cybersecurity threats and to find out how companies are preparing for next generation cyber terror threats. The overwhelming majority of security professionals and leaders, 97%, told us their organizations are as prepared or more prepared today than one year ago. However, the threat of the unknown is as real as ever. In fact, only one in five of those same cybersecurity professionals would wager a chocolate bar on the state of their readiness. 
To learn more, visit Ivanti.com slash cybersecurity report. It has been over 30 years since Hurricane Andrew devastated South Florida. That storm marked the beginning of the Home Depot being a hub for help during disasters, a tradition that continues today. To commemorate those efforts, the company is releasing a new film called Hope Bills. Briar Waterman, Senior Director, Creative Design of the Home Depot. Drawing from interviews and using archive footage, we trace the origin, growth, and sophistication of the Home Depot's disaster relief efforts, demonstrating it is deeply connected to the values of the company and our unwavering support to our communities during their times of need. Whether it be a veteran in need or a community devastated by a natural disaster, Home Depot associates go beyond the job, beyond the nine to five, to make sure that their neighbors and communities are taken care of. This documentary is a prime example. To learn more about the film or for help creating your emergency supply kit, visit your local Home Depot or thehomedepot.com slash hopebills. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States, including yours. But they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, Visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Every year is Alan Nathan, the Militant Moderate. Once again, this is the Oasis for those who have an aversion to the left, right, black, white, two-dimensional approach. Um, again, lefties babyishly implode after Chris Rock skewers society's preoccupation with outsized outrage, conjured claims of victimhood, artificial assertions of racism. Again, those made by Meghan Markle. And snarkily slaps Will and Jada Smith for humiliating themselves. It's, it's a riot, it really is. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But right now, I want to zero in on how Democrats are saying that uh, the GOP's demands for, for uh, cuts uh, in order to raise the debt ceiling actually attacks our health care, while Republicans claim that the left spending will crash the economy. 
The problem is, is they're both ignoring how the removal of redundant spending could save us trillions over just one decade. Kind of makes you wonder, should Will Smith be visiting both parties? We have assisting in the opining and analyzing all front of the show, Phil Kirpin, president of Americans, uh, or I should say president of American Commitment and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. He's also a contributor to Fox News Opinion, a chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition, and author of the highly praised work entitled Democracy Denied. Good to have you back, Phil. How are you today? I'm um, great, Alan. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Um, looking at what Biden is trying to do right now, Biden, as you know, he originally attacked Republicans wishing to cauterize our fiscal hemorrhaging by claiming that they were out to destroy Social Security and Medicare. Now, that was provably false. Now they're instead saying that the GOP is going after Medicaid while pushing a tax cut that we don't need. White House spokesperson um, um, uh, Andrew Bates said, quote, they're threatening to intentionally plunge our economy into chaos and kill millions of jobs and businesses if they don't get their way. Uh, he accused the Republicans of, quote, unquote, pushing exorbitant tax welfare. Now, uh, it does turn out that uh, former White House Office and Management and Budget Director Russell Vought, or Void, I should say, a guy whose organization has a lot of uh, sway with the GOP-led Congress, uh, he, he's, again, currently head of the Center for Renewing America. And um, his folks are pushing for, and this is how the Washington Examiner reports it, they're calling for, quote, $9 trillion in cuts over the next 10 years, targeting federal agencies as well as health care, housing, and food assistance programs. While it aims to cut Obamacare, Medicaid, the plan protects Medicare and Social Security, a point of tension within the party that Biden has sought to exploit. This is the end of the excerpt. How many areas do you think uh, can be defended credibly in this regard, and perhaps how many cannot be? Your sense of it, Phil. Well, I think that Russ's model budget is a very strong document. I've, I've read the whole thing, and uh, I think the cuts are pretty much all sensible. He does have some increases in there for defense and for uh, border security. Uh, I'm not even sure I would do that because, frankly, uh, I don't think there's any part of the federal government that couldn't be cut 10 or 20 percent just on pure waste, just on uh, money that's essentially thrown down a rat hole. Uh, and so uh, I think that uh, – it's a pretty good starting point. I wish that Republicans would be a little bit more aggressive in terms of the asks that they're making a little bit more like that uh, model, because so far the only things they've talked about cutting are uh, rescinding the unobligated COVID balances and putting uh, work requirements on food stamps and blocking uh, some of Biden's student loan bailouts. Now, I'm for all of that. But it's not going to add up to a huge amount of money. Uh, so I think they're going to have to go beyond that and uh, be willing uh, to take the fight a little bit more, uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know, being willing to go after something that people will push back on and you'll have a little bit, bit more of a fight. But, uh, you know, I, I keep seeing these headlines about how much influence Russ has. I hope it's true because I think his budget um, is – uh, is the kind of ambition that we should see from Republicans right let's, now, let's given say for the argument's long-term sake, budget outlook. Let's say for argument's sake the budget's good, that he has, he's got great ideas. Um, I would think, though, before they do that, wouldn't they want to go for the low, lowest hanging fruit? Because as I've mentioned a few times during the show, and I've, I've done it in, in past programs, each year the GAO, the Government Accounting Office, reports that we're misplacing about $350 billion through redundant spending. This is each year. And this is because we've got like 580 duplicative programs managed by about 180 government agencies. Now, it seems that we could stop these duplicative programs immediately while hurting nobody. And we could do that because they're all duplicated. 
And it would seem that regardless of party affiliation, nobody can justify this stupidity when both sides of the aisle could benefit from the stoppage of this hemorrhaging practice. I mean, think about it. It would give us back about $3.5 trillion a decade all by itself. I want to share with you a quick clip of Barack Obama. He touched on this uh, back in 2011, and he made a lot of sense. One of the few times he did so. Uh, clip one, Derek, if you please. We live and do business in the information age. But the last major reorganization of the government happened in the age of black and white TV. There are 12 different agencies that deal with exports. There are at least five different agencies that deal with housing policy. Then there's my favorite example. The Interior Department is in charge of salmon while they're in fresh water, but the Commerce Department handles them when they're in salt water. I hear it gets even more complicated once they're smoked. You know, I loved hearing that when he said it the first time, and, I, and, and, it, and it's aged very well. I mean, it's a great concept. Of course, he never backed any of that up. But am I wrong in saying this is the low-hanging fruit we should get to first because this is the stuff you can cut and hurt, would hurt nobody? Your take. Yeah, it ought to be. Look, I mean, I think that uh, you make a really good point of the programs that we don't need at all because they duplicate other programs. They actually add more complexity. They make things more difficult. Make you know, If you think there ought to be a government program for something, um, you probably should think there should only be one, right? And it should be well-designed and it should be comprehensive. And once you start having two, three, four programs that try to deal with the same thing, you create an enormous amount of complexity and confusion and waste. So would you and, agree uh, with me then, would you yeah, agree with me then like that it would it. be more circumspect to go ahead and before you touch Medicaid, do this stuff? Now, I know there's wasted Medicaid. The I'm not saying otherwise, problem, but Alan. why not do this stuff before hurting Medicaid? Here's the problem, Alan. If you decide that uh, only one agency ought to have uh, authority for a given program area where several currently do, you're going to have to fight all those other agencies, and you're going to have to decide which one gets it. And, uh, you know, these things are all much easier said than done, unfortunately. But I agree with you. I think that ought to be something that we could agree on and would save an enormous amount of money. And, by the way, these programs would work better if there weren't, you know, multiple duplicated sure, sure. programs. Well, see, I think the template of the search and seizure, if you will, of, of who to who to whack is rather self-evident. You just go to where the duplication is. Anything duplicated will lose something. It doesn't matter the agency. It doesn't matter the people associated with it. It doesn't matter the promises that were made by Republicans and Democrats to favored constituents and bringing them all about. That's the that would be the neutral objective measure if it's duplicated it goes regardless of which person's ox is gored because again since it's duplicated the people aren't really going to be hurt by it the only ones going to be harmed were the graft merchants that pressured the politicos in focus where am i mistaken well, you know, there are also, remember, every government program has its various constituencies that benefit from it. So in the benefit programs, there may be the people that are on the rolls. Of course, it's also the various vendors. It's the employees of the agencies themselves. Uh, and so anytime you actually try to eliminate a government program, even a duplicative, duplicative one, you're going to have to confront those interests that benefit from it continuing. But it's worth doing. So I agree with you. Oh, my God, yeah. Actually, Phil, if you could, buddy, hang on the line for just a moment because there's so much more that we need to get into about this battle over the debt ceiling and, and a lot of other areas. Folks, you're listening to The Alan Nathan Show right here on the Main Street Radio Network. Stick with us.
want to make sure that we don't overfeed our animals because feeding our animals more is not love. You know, there's so many other ways you can show love, like throwing a ball and walking them and give them a little extra love. The annual end obesity campaign by Hills is wonderful for a guy like me and Dr. Hodges who are practicing veterinarians because it's obesity, like you said, is one of those um, illnesses or conditions that we see most in the veterinary hospital. And it can be very difficult sometimes talking to clients about, you know, their patient being obese, you know. But Heels with their campaign have given us the tool to be able to get this message across. And it's something that they do annually. They've invested a lot of time, a lot of money into the research, into the pet food that we can use to help these animals that are obese. So you can go to inpetobesity.com and you can learn a whole lot more about how you can actually use the love test as well as learn more about Hills Pet Nutrition and ways to control your pet's weight. Hi there, it's Joe Montana. Life after football has been full of taking my shot at new things. Now I'm working with Pfizer to tell you about pneumococcal pneumonia. Pneumococcal pneumonia should be the last thing standing in your way. Pneumococcal pneumonia is a potentially serious bacterial lung disease that can strike any time of year. It can disrupt your life for weeks, and in severe cases, it can put you in the hospital and even be life-threatening. And Joe knows that vaccination is one of the best ways to help protect himself from pneumococcal pneumonia. If you're 65 or older or 19 or older with certain underlying medical conditions like asthma, COPD, chronic heart disease, or diabetes, Talk to your doctor or pharmacist about the risks of pneumococcal pneumonia and whether vaccination is right for you. Understand your risk at KnowPneumonia.com. That's K-N-O-W pneumonia.com. This is your shot. This message is brought to you by Pfizer. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing, to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure, um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving.
A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Glowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes, when we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Every year is Alan Nathan, the militant moderate. Once again, this is the Oasis for those who have an aversion to the left, right, black, white, uh, two-dimensional approach. Absolutely delighted you could be with us uh, covering a number of things here. Of course, uh, right now we're zeroing in on Democrats saying that the Republican demand for cuts before raising the debt ceiling uh, is something that really attacks health care, while the Republicans are claiming that the left spending will crash the economy, even as both ignore the removal of redundant spending that could save trillions over just a decade, perhaps Will Smith should be visiting both sides of the aisle. Uh, we have assisting in the opining and analyzing, over front of the show, Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. He's also a contributor to Fox News Opinion and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. By the way, he's also author of the very highly praised book entitled Democracy Denied. Phil, good to have you back. I appreciate you sticking around. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I want to talk about some of the funny math that we're having uh, on, on Capitol Hill. Um, it's the stupid use of baseline projections as a way to falsely characterize actual increases in spending as if they're cuts. This is really a classic example of political deception, and I think more folks need to be armed with the language that defines it. And I want you to help me with the folks at home uh, get this accomplished to whatever extent we can. So let me set this up, and you tell me where I'm mistaken. Democrats' complaints about spending cuts, they're, they're always based on spending at a lower than projected increased amount versus being an amount that's actually less. Republicans are no better because they'll brag to their constituents about how, how they're working for cuts, which are, again, really nothing but spending at a lower than projected increased amount. So how can either side credibly call them authentic cuts, whether they're whining or bragging about them? Phil. Well, um, you're absolutely right. And, you know, if we actually could cut spending, as in spend, you know, less next year than we did this year, uh, we could balance the federal budget pretty quickly. As Rand Paul points out, if we could reduce spending to 2019 levels, we would have a surplus this year. Uh, 2019 was, was only a few years ago, of course. Uh, now, things are getting more expensive. We've had a lot of inflation, so on and so forth. And so it's probably not realistic to just dial spending back across the board. But, of course, if you cut you know, hundreds of useless, duplicative, unnecessary programs, destructive, wasteful, and so forth, uh, then you would not have to, you know, the, then you could allow some growth from 2019 and some of the other things that actually are worthwhile and uh, maybe balance the budget that way. As a practical matter, 
you don't even need to cut in real terms if you could just have a moderate spending restraint. If you could limit the growth of spending overall, uh, then you could reach balance uh, pretty quickly because revenues are, are pretty high uh, in terms of percent of GDP. We actually have the second highest level of federal revenues ever last year. But uh, you're right. Instead of getting, you know, uh, in they play this game where they assume very, very large increases in everything, and then the debate is whether we should cut or increase from those uh, you know, already increasing levels, uh, which is pretty deceptive. One of the things the Democrats uh, hate are, are hearing the term tax cuts, even though historically they've always brought about the very additional revenue Democrats are whining about wanting. I mean, uh, JFK told us in 1962, quote, it's a paradoxical truth that tax rates are too high today and tax revenues are too low. And the soundest way to raise revenues in the long run is to cut the rates now. He went on to say the purpose of cutting taxes now is not to incur a budget deficit, but to achieve the more prosperous expanding economy, which can bring a budget surplus. And then uh, the following year, he said in today's economy, fiscal prudence and responsibility call for tax reduction even if it temporarily enlarges the federal deficit, reducing taxes is the best way open to us to increase revenues, unquote. He was basically arguing that those additional revenues do wind up back in the Treasury to counterbalance any deficit that might have been temporarily incurred from the initial tax cuts. I guess he was basically pointing out that the lower the tax rates, the greater the revenue, because you really allow that many more businesses to hire that many more folks who then become that many more taxpayers and that many more taxpayers. And it seems, Phil, that that reality does both grow the economy and eventually increase tax dollars to the Treasury as long as we're not outpacing it with crazy spending. Where am I mistaken? Well, I think that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, you know, we had uh, we had major tax cuts under President Trump, and of course, the Democrats and the media said what they always said that uh, this is going to result in massive deficits and uh, it's going to collapse government revenue. And in fact, we have had massive deficits, but not because of the tax cuts. Uh, we've had some of the highest revenue uh, in the history of the country. In fact, we had about 20% of GDP last year for only the second time in history. It was uh, remarkably high. Revenue year, we also had a very large deficit. Why? Because spending increased uh, by even more than revenues did. And if you look at the long-term projections uh, from the Congressional Budget Office, revenues are in the historical norm, even a little bit above the historical average. You know, for the next couple of decades. Well, then let me the ask you this. Exploding. Let me ask you this. But why spending... isn't your estimation then? Why isn't your estimation then that more on the Democrat side of the aisle aren't catching on to the fact? that they're stepping on themselves because it would seem that the very thing they ostensibly want is what they're preempting. They want that much more money for all their preferred social safety net programs. They want more money coming in, and yet they're shooting down one of the most effective vehicles to bring those extra dollars about. I, I, I'm at a loss. It's confusing. Well, I think that... Um the Democrats care more about uh, ideology, exercising control and, and yeah. uh, implementing their ideology than they do in what the actual results are. No, that's no, why I they refuse I'm, to learn this lesson. No, no, that, that's true. That's true. Well, you know what it is? They, they, they continue characterizing uh, the preference for spending cuts over tax increases as tantamount to favoring the wealthy over average citizens. But there's no example they can give that actually links the wealthy's success to the government's overspending, is there? I mean, how can they attack the former as if, the, as if it's a remedy for the latter? I mean, since when is their overspending meaning 
that we're undertaxed. It makes no sense, does it? Uh, it doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, but, of course, you know, look, uh, they look longingly at European countries that have higher taxes and higher spending than the United States. And that's the model that they want. They want a larger government uh, that t- that has more of the resources of the economy uh, managed uh, by it, as opposed to the private sector. Of course, um, you know, I don't think our tax system is ever going to yield European-type uh, levels of revenue, and it never has. And you know, even with much higher income tax rates, uh, it suppressed economic growth, and they didn't get much more uh, than the same kind of 18 to 20 percent that we've seen uh, in recent years with much lower rates. And so, of course, if they really want European-type uh, taxation and spending levels, they're going to need another broad-based tax. Like in Europe, they have the value-added tax. Value added and tax. I, yeah. think I, I had a business over overseas, and I, I, had to, I became very familiar with value-added tax. But again, I, I think they have to learn that just because they overspend doesn't mean we're undertaxed. And it would seem to me that the wealthier about as responsible for the government's fiscal mismanagement as the Lithuanians are for potholes in Pittsburgh. I mean, since every dollar raised in new taxes just constitutes another dollar that our leaders don't have to cut from wastefully duplicated and misplaced spending, why are we even considering it? I mean... It just it just seems as if it's so counterintuitive. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, except that Washington doesn't seem to ever learn. And, um, you know, the only good news I can give you on that is I do think that the House conservatives have sort of boxed the current speaker in. And he's in a circumstance now where he's got to fight for real spending reductions or else he could lose his gavel. And so whether he'll actually get them from a Democratic president, Democratic Senate, I don't know, but uh, the usual but, and, Washington but you and I know logic that, does have a disruption this time. But you and I both know it won't even real it won't even be real reduction. I mean, you got this escapist terminology, which is to say the cuts will be based on what's quote unquote relative to baseline projections. In other words, they'll spend at a lower than projected they'll spend at lower than projected increases originally envisioned. Um, and and that's just not. You know, even if we go the McCarthy way, even if we go the GOP way, we're still going to technically be spending more. We're just going to be spending less than originally projected. Isn't that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. Certainly in nominal dollars, we're going to be spending more. But remember, inflation is running, you know, 6 7%. Uh, so if we could get government spending growth to less than that, then in real terms, uh, the government will be shrinking. So, uh as much as you and I might love to see, you know, immediate major cuts balance the budget this year, even within uh, the realm of what's politically possible, I think we can make significant progress. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a super Trump fan. If anything, I kind of like uh, DeSantis. I'm, an, I'm a centrist. I'm a social progressive. But I have a big embrace of the Constitution in its original format, not the living document theory. So I'm not a big Trump fan. But I do find it ironic that the left are trying to blame Trump for the inflation we're facing today. If memory serves, when Trump left office, even with COVID hitting, inflation was about 1.8% or something like that. And now it's at 6.7% under Biden after a few years. Hell, it got up to 8.3%, did it not? It did. On, you know, that was related to all the massive spending that was done in the name of COVID, most of which was the Fed printing money. Yeah, that's inflation when you have more dollars out there in the system than can be justified by the economy to which it's attached. Remember, after World War I in Germany, they were running around with wheelbarrows full of cash just to buy one loaf of bread. 
That's what happens when you generate more cash than the economy can justify. Anyway, Phil Kirpin, always is a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Alan Nathan Show right here on the Main Street Radio Network. Stick with us. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM SkillsBuild continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year, remember... There is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who who got got his first first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat. Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. 
Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. The biggest addiction in America is attention. We are addicted to attention. Can't get enough attention. We used to want love. Now we just want likes. <laughs> Posting up pathetic pictures. This is me eating sushi. Like me. <laughs> Easiest way to get attention is to be a victim. If everybody claims to be a victim, when the real victims need help, ain't nobody gonna be there to help them. And right now we live in a world where the emergency room is filled up with mother with paper cuts. Okay? Everybody trying to be a victim. Funny as hell. Every year is Alan Nathan, the militant moderate. Once again, this is the Oasis for those who have an aversion to the left, right, black, white, two-dimensional approach. Absolutely delighted you'll be with us covering a number of things here. But that was, of course, uh, Chris Rock. Lefties are babyishly imploding after Chris Rock skewers society's preoccupation with outsized outrage, conjured claims of victimhood, artificial assertions of racism, such as those made by Meghan Markle, and, of course, uh, he snarkily snaps Will and Jada Smith for humiliating themselves. Really hilarious. Anyway, we have assisting in the opining and analyzing. Over to the show, Curtis Houck, uh, managing editor of Newsbusters. He previously served in the Media Research Center's News Analysis Division. At the time, he was the sole evening news guy. Uh, Curtis, good to have you back. How are you today? Hey, Alan. How are you? Doing well, doing well. He, uh, he's really getting uh, knocked about by the left. Uh, ben Collins uh, from MSNBC said... Uh, Got 14 minutes into the Chris Rock special before my subconscious took over. I said, okay, that's enough. Out loud and turn my whole TV off. Pure animal instinct defending against hearing the same joke for the 80th thousandth time. 8,000th time. That never happened. He didn't repeat anything. My soul was dying and took control of my physical self. My soul was dying and took control of my physical self. I mean, histrionics uh, on crack, if you will. Um, your take on what's happening right now with the left skewering uh, Chris Rock over his skewering of the woke left. I roll. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't help but just roll my eyes. I'm like, as you were reading those those responses, like, get over it. Get over it. I mean, the, talk about you know the left that's supposed to be all tolerant and, and you know talking about hearing new ideas. 
Chris Rock should have a chance to respond as he sees fit. And this is what he was doing. It's not like he was making this Netflix special, you know, the day after, week after the incident. Okay, we're coming up on a year of when this happened. So I kind of think it's fair, especially more pertinent to hear what he has to say, because at this point, the media, the same people criticizing this response, what he was saying, would probably be saying, where's Chris Rock? So if he didn't say anything, they'd be saying he's a coward for his silence. Yeah, and, and it's wonderful how the left just can never demonstrate any capacity for self-appraisal whatsoever. That's their sign of weakness. When you can't laugh at yourself, at least on occasion, right. when you can't take a bit of ribbing, you are exposing how adolescent you truly are. You truly are. You are weak, and you are as infinitesimal in bravery as as a child in a busy street it's just that straightforward um, matter of fact he had a bit to say about those who make false assertions of racism as well uh, this is what he had when talking about Meg Markle Megan Markle uh, clip five Derek if you please that she went through was not racism it was just some in-law <laughs> so she's complaining I'm like what the is she talking about no they're so racist they wanted to know how brown the baby was going to be. They're so racist. They wanted to know how brown the baby's going to be. I'm like, that's not racist. Because even black people want to know. How brown the baby going to be. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just like. Oh, man. I thought that was like out of the, you know, it's like, you know, he's exposing the fact that the left refused to recognize the difference between issues relevant to racial conflict versus issues relevant to conflict that just might transpire between people who are not of the same race. You know what I mean? Like if a black guy and a white guy have an argument, um, it's racism. But they don't realize that the very argument that could be argued by a black guy and a white guy could also be argued by two blacks, two whites, two Hispanics, two Asians, two Middle Easterners. But for some reason, if the disagreement is between two people of different colors, it must be a racial conflict or a racial problem. He seems to get to the heart of it, does he not? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're talking about Meghan Markle, like Archie, their first child. Like, how black is he going to be? That's the kind of thing you hear about all the time. You, you even hear black people talk about it, that they are prejudiced against by other black people who don't think that they're black enough, like they're, that their skin color just isn't truly black. So therefore, were you white? You know, you're a white person. Um, how horrible. How horrible. You know, the supposedly tolerant, you know, anti-racist left is pure is, you know, engages in pure racism on a daily basis. Um, so I think, yeah, there's definitely credence to that at as well as, yeah, disagreements, uh, like how he ended the show, that uh, he, he ended up by saying, uh, you know, it goes back to, like, what I heard about my mom told me or something like that, two black people shouldn't fight in public or something. Oh, yeah, uh, the reason why didn't he slap back, he says, because I was raised. He said, because I was raised, I my was parents raised, raised me. Uh, no, you're right on that, too. Um, but he, he even went after corporate America for virtue signaling. And I thought he did a good job on that as well. Let's hear a little bit from him on virtue signaling. Uh, that would be, okay, clip four. Listen to what he has to say about companies preoccupied with things we don't, we don't care about. Clip four, uh, Derek, if you please. Not only is everybody full of every business is full of shit. Everybody you do business, they don't even tell you about the product no more. They just tell you how much 
much charity they do. It's like, we give back. We like to give back. We don't even like the money. We just give back. I'm, I'm in the mall the other day. I went by that store, uh, what's this thing, uh, Lululemon. Lululemon, I walk by, and in the window of every Lululemon, there's a sign that says, we don't support racism, sexism, discrimination, or hate. And I'm like, who gives a f You're just selling yoga pants. I don't need your yoga pants politics. Tell me how you work on ball sweat. What the f are you talking about, man? I mean, he was a trip, was he not? Oh, yeah, I mean... It's so true. Uh, you know, you hear about like Coca-Cola puts out a statement about this or uh, Oreos often it has like the rainbow colored Oreos. Tell me how you're going to get more filling in there, please. Really? I mean, stop lecturing all of us and stop projecting upon the rest of society a supposed need for elevated thought, which it has already acquired. Thank you very much. This country, more so than any other nation, when asked in multiple surveys, overwhelmingly supports interracial marriage, more, th more so than any other country on the face of the planet. That does not sound like a nation that needs to be consistently lectured on the evils of racism, especially from the left that seems to embody the very racism it's ostensibly against. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.